Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight on The Readout. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. Mike Pence back in November with about as much anger as Pence is able to muster, describing Trump's dereliction of duty on January 6th. And today, the former vice president presumably said much more to the grand jury in the DOJ's January 6th probe. Also tonight, you can't beat me up for not screaming. The chilling words of E. Jean Carroll, who was back on the witness stand today, facing cross-examination in Trump's civil rape trial. And we begin tonight with the breaking news that former Vice President Mike Pence testified before the D.C. grand jury investigating Donald Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection. The path to Pence's testimony was cleared yesterday when a three-judge panel rejected Trump's emergency bid to prevent Pence from testifying. Pence's appearance is a testament to the speed at which Special Prosecutor Jack Smith is moving with his investigation into the former president's intent to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Pence, who is considering a 2024 presidential run, spent nearly eight hours in front of the grand jury answering detailed, probative questions from lawyers. This is the first time the former vice president shared his own personal experiences to anyone connected with law enforcement. Prior to this, he refused a congressional subpoena from the January 6th committee, saying that they had no right to his testimony. Today, roughly 30 Washington, D.C. residents got to hear his unvarnished account or one that wasn't edited for a book. It should not be lost on the public how close Trump supporters came to upending American democracy and violently attacking members of Congress, including the vice president. Thanks to the January 6th committee, we learned that insurrectionists came within 40 feet of Pence and his family. His life was very much in danger, but Donald Trump didn't care because Donald Trump waged an unrelenting public and private pressure campaign on his vice president after the election because Trump wanted Pence to overturn the election. Just last March, Trump blamed Pence for the violence, telling a crowd of supporters that it was Pence's fault because he refused to send the election back to the states. Joining me now is Olivia Troy, former senior advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, Georgetown professor of law, and MSNBC legal analyst. I will note that we do have some new reporting here from our own John Allen uh, just moments ago in Manchester, New Hampshire, where Trump is, rather than being at the E. Jean Carroll trial, where he probably ought to be. Uh, he walked into the Red Arrow Diner, NBC's John Allen, asked former 
uh, President Trump about former Vice President Mike Pence testifying to this grand jury related to his efforts to overturn the election. Here's what um, Mike Allen asked him, Mr. President, uh, what do you think of Mike Pence testifying today? And Trump said, oh, I don't know what he said, but I have a lot of confidence in him. You've covered Donald Trump for quite some time. What do you make of that and of the fact that Mike Pence finally did go in and testify? That's not the message from behind the scenes in the Trump world. They basically see Pence's testimony as potentially the most damaging thing that could be uh, for Trump in the January 6th investigation. Look, Pence was there at all of the key moments. He was there on the night before the Capitol attack on January 5. He was there the morning of the Capitol attack, one-on-one with Trump. Yep. These are conversations that the January 6th committee could never get a hold of. Also, Pence was discussing how to or whether he could use objections to throw out the election either to the House or to send it back to the states. And these are discussions that were being done at the White House with Republican members of Congress. So Pence saw a lot. He was there in the room all the way through from election night to January 6th. And that is why Jack Smith has been so interested in pursuing his testimony. Yeah, I mean, Olivia, you could imagine that he would have a lot to say, right? Um, he actually asked a former vice president, can I do this? So he did entertain the idea of overturning the election. I do want to play what um, his former aide, Mark Short, told the January 6th committee. This was part of his testimony. Um, and this is the, the question of what Pence was being told and what he was saying to Donald Trump. Take a listen. Was it your impression that the vice president had directly conveyed his position on these issues to the president, not just to the world through a dear colleague letter, but directly to President Trump? Many times. And had been consistent in conveying his position to the president. Very consistent. Very consistent in saying, I don't have the le- I don't have the legal right to do this. Donald Trump then goes out, does his speech, and and then he tweets later and says Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. Here was the reaction of the crowd. This is on January sixth when Donald Trump puts up that tweet saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage. I'm telling you what, I'm hearing the Pence. I hear the Pence just caved. No. Is that true? I didn't I'm hear hear, I'm hearing no. reports that Pence caved. No I'm way. telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag no. through the streets. You politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. Yes. I guess the hope is that there's such a show of force here that Pence will decide to do the, the right show. thing, according to Trump. And yet, Olivia, he, Pence resisted testifying, was subpoenaed uh, to testify and still resisted it. What do you make of the fact that now he is talking and he has to tell his story? Well, first, I think, look, I think it's good that he's testifying. I think it's critical. He is definitely the one person who knows everything that happened in those conversations. Yep. And I think the jury needs to hear it. Um, I think this gives him sort of the, I would say, the judicial and political talk cover to be able to be forthcoming finally. He may not state it publicly, although he did write about it in his book. Um, But I think, you know, I think this gives him a little bit of leeway to say, look, I was compelled. I'm going to follow the law on this and I'm going to tell the truth. And I hope that he did. I I, I believe that he did. Um, Look, I was at that January 6th hearing when they played that footage of how close that ugly, horrific, heinous mob came to him. And at the end of the day, he was my boss for two and a half years, and I had a visceral reaction. Not only that I knew him as a human being and the fact that his family was put at risk and everyone else was, but also that that was a sitting vice president of the United States that I keep going back to at the time that our own U.S. president put at risk. Yeah. 
that it, that should never be discounted, mm-hmm. right? And I to think that this is the front runner for the GOP that that person could come back into power. Yeah, I think that is why this Mike Pence testimony matters so much in front of these Americans, a jury of American peers. Yeah, I mean, the, the and the idea that other elected officials would already preemptively support him to be president again, knowing what he did. Paul, you know, as a prosecutor, I wonder what you would want to know from Pence the most. I mean, Pence has admitted at the gridiron dinner, he said, he put my family at risk. He put me at risk. He admitted it when there were no cameras there. Um, but he has said a, a few things that show that he does understand he was in danger of dying that day. What would you want to know? So in his book, Pence wrote that he and Trump had a close working relationship for four years, but it didn't end well. How's that for an understatement? (laughs) Uh, I want to know the details about what he meant by that. Prosecutors love grand juries. I've been in front of that D.C. grand jury many times. They love it because it's their forum. The defense attorney isn't allowed. Uh, The regular rules of evidence don't apply as long as it's relevant. You can ask two questions. Uh, The first is, when you told Trump that what he wanted you to do was unconstitutional, did he say... I disagree, which would be a defense, meaning that he lacked criminal intent. Or did he say, I don't care, do it anyway, which would implicate him in a criminal conspiracy of the highest order? The other question is about the violence that Olivia referenced. Pence's Secret Service detail on January 6th were texting goodbye messages to their family members. Uh, What did Trump talk to Pence regarding violence? How much did How much potential for violence was Pence aware of? What were the one-on-one conversations between Pence and Trump on violence about that day and before? And we know that there were phone calls in which um, Donald Trump got on the phone with Pence and called him the P-word, according to Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka. Um, And we know that Pence was refusing to get into a car with Secret Service agents that weren't his personal detail, that he said, I don't know where you're going to take me. So he understood the plot. He understood exactly what was being asked of him. Um, If you're looking at this just from a prosecutor's point of view, if they're at the point now where they're talking to Pence, they've talked to Mark Short, they've talked to some of his other aides, does this tell you they're closer to making a decision that Jack Smith is getting to a conclusion if he's now essentially interviewed the primary potential victim? It, it does. There's nowhere else to go. Uh, President, Former President Trump is not going to come to the grand jury. So this is the highest order. And this week we learned that Not only has the Justice Department prosecuted a thousand people uh, for uh, crimes related to January 6th, they announced that they plan to uh, prosecute another thousand. That will be 2000. But these are the little guys. Right. And so the question is, can 2000 people be forced to face criminal consequences? But the person who seems to be the leader of the conspiracy escape accountability. We're also waiting to find out what happens with the Proud Boys, right? We don't know if they're going to get charged with seditious conspiracy. Is that the fear among Trump world, that Pence Pence being interviewed means that this is coming to a conclusion? And what is it that they plan to do? This man is running for president. He's now out there on the stumps doing exactly that. Yeah, I think the Trump legal team sees Pence going in as basically the end of the investigation or very, very near the end of the investigation. We've got a number of other Trump administration officials who are yet to go in, people like Nick Luna uh, and kind of Dan, you know, people who are in the inner circle, very, very close, who lost their legal challenges and want to have to testify. Um, that being said, you know, I think we should just mention with Pence that 
there was an order from Jim Boesberg, the chief judge uh, in the district court here, who essentially gave him some narrow scope of speech or debate clause right. immunity. Right. And we don't know the exact parameters of that, but it is important because that does protect, you know, Pence from having to testify effectively about any preparations he had done to go for January 6th as presiding officer of the Senate. Sure. So that is important to remember. But I think Trump looks at all of this and sees an investigation that is bearing down on it. I mean, and the part that they, they said that the judge ruled that the speech and debate clause doesn't protect him from talking about crimes, right? And I guess the question would be from a national security standpoint, we've seen what Donald Trump can do when he just loses an election. Um, you know, what do you suspect is going on in terms of the national security apparatus of the country in the event that Jack Smith does indict Donald Trump? Look, I think there's concern. I've had conversations with the FBI agents. I've had conversations amongst the national security. I think there is sort of a debate on what does this do to the country? Will there be violence? What does this mean? I don't know that it'll be culminated in one spot. I think it's more of a national sort of level violence that goes on in one-offs. We've seen that kind of galvanize in that way. Uh, But look, at the end of the day, let's think about this. There are Proud Boys that are on trial this week. Mm -hmm. That's coming to an end. They all point to Trump. Yeah. They all say, I was there because he told me to be there. I was there at his behest. They're all trying to spin their defense saying it's him. So, you know, Mike Pence, this is is your turn to say, yeah. It was him. It was him. We, we now know, last for two, Paul, that there was, an, there was a second firm. It wasn't just one firm that told Donald Trump, you lost. So he now we, we now have lots of evidence that he knew that he lost, that he still pushed to do this. What are his chances of getting away without indictment, given the fact that you know and that we know and that the January 6th commission brought forward? Um, I think those chances are slim to none. Um, I can't imagine the conversations with Jack Smith about are you really going to bring the vice, the former vice president of the United States into the D.C. grand jury? You don't do that unless yeah. you mean it. Unless there's something going on. And there's also the Fonnie Willis case. There's so much going on right now. Uh, Paul Butler, Olivia Troy, uh, Hugo Lowell. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate all of you. All right. Uh, coming up on the readout, uh, Trump accuser E.G. Carroll, we just mentioned, faces a grueling cross-examination one day after testifying about her alleged rape by Donald Trump. The readout continues after this. For a second day, writer E. Jean Carroll was on the stand in a New York courtroom in her civil trial against Donald Trump, alleging that he raped her inside a New York department store in the 1990s. Following her emotional testimony yesterday, where she recounted the alleged attack, today she faced a tough cross-examination. From Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, who tried to chip away at her credibility and compared almost every detail of what Carroll testified to to her past accounts of the alleged rape, looking for inconsistencies. While Trump has denied the allegations, you likely won't hear it from him inside the courtroom. Today is the deadline for Trump's attorneys to let the judge know whether he will testify in person. And we're still waiting to hear that decision. Joining me now are Katie Fang, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the eponymous Katie Fang Show, and Adam Reese, NBC News producer and reporter who is inside the courtroom today. Adam, give us your recap. What did you see and hear? I've heard the testimony was pretty dramatic, the back and forth with Joe Tacopina and um, E. Jean Carroll. 
It really was, Joy. But there really was no smoking gun, no bombshell. She kept to her story. She was really steadfast. Joe Tacopina tried to uh, cut through, tried to get her on inconsistencies, whether she remembered the day, the date, the time of the alleged rape, uh, how she may have changed her story from when she spoke to The Washington Post and The New York Times or Lawrence O'Donnell here at MSNBC. He just wasn't breaking through. And the judge was not having it. The judge was very upset. He was adamant that Mr. Takapina was being repetitive and argumentative. There were numerous objections throughout the day. Almost all of them were upheld by the judge. It got very emotional when she got to the point where the alleged rape took place in the dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman. She said, you can't keep attacking me because I didn't scream. I'm not a screamer. I didn't scream. He raped me whether I screamed or not, she said. She said it loudly. She was sobbing. It was a very emotional moment. And now this is consistent with most experts that, that alleged rape victims say that she didn't um, call the police. She didn't write about it in her diary, which she said she didn't want to be reminded of it all the time. She um. kept the dress. And in, in fact, the jury uh, kept their eyes on her the whole time. The only time they looked down was when it got very graphic, the descriptions of what happened inside that dressing room. Wow. I, yeah, and I was, that's what I was going to ask you, Adam, is where, where were people looking? At, let me ask you this one little beat bit, and then I will ask Katie about the same thing. Takapina, according to uh, the, the notes that, you were, that, that came from the courtroom, Takapina tried to portray Ms. Carroll as man-hating, noting the premise of her book was that men were a nuisance. She corrected him and said, actually, the premise was that men should be rounded up and sent to Montana to be retrained. Takapina pointed to the men in the courtroom and gestured even to the jury box. All those men, Carroll said she meant it satirically. At which point Kaplan, the judge, interrupted and said, it comes from Jonathan Swift, a modest proposal 700 years ago. And she smiled. During moments like that, where Takapina was trying to portray E. Jean Carroll as some sort of political activist or a man-hater, there are six men on that jury, right? Six or seven men on the jury. Um, where, where, what was their sort of reaction to that kind of interchange? It, there are six men and three women, and there was a lot of banter back and forth. It was fairly civil, but it did get pretty heated. And as I said, the judge was breaking in. But she did say, I don't hate men. I actually love men. And there was some chuckles within the courtroom. Um, but yes, it, it was—the discourse was very combative at times, and uh, the jury was picking up on it. You know, and Katie, those who have seen Joe Tacopina on our friend Ari Melber's show, they know what he's like. That's yeah. the personality that you're getting. He's I mean, big I, and bombastic. Bombastic. I, let's, there's another one. Here's another one. Just the opening. So Tacopina comes in. He says, good morning to Miss Carol, who doesn't respond. Then he says it again louder per these notes. And when she responded in kind, he murmured, there you go. It was a moment of condescension that pervaded his questioning, although his tone got gentler after that. Your thoughts on his demeanor? Let's talk about strategy when you're a trial lawyer. Let's talk about having a female victim on the stand. How smart was it for Donald Trump's legal team to use a male lawyer to cross-examine Because there is a woman the that's, on the, that's sitting with him, right? There's Alina Haba. Yeah. Alina Haba could have done it. Eh, we don't know, right? Yeah. But putting aside competency, Joe Tacopin is a trial lawyer, so I mean, I, I won't undercut that particular part of that, you know, concept or strategy. But 
you know, when, whenever we were looking or whenever we were trying a case before, for me, you'd always want to say, how is this going to be perceived by the jury? Is right. it going to be looking like this victim is being re-victimized, which right. is exactly what happens when you're the victim of sexual assault. You get re-victimized when you have to tell the story over and over again to the police or now to a jury or to a judge or even to the prosecutor, for example, if it's a criminal case, when they're preparing you for the trial. And so was it smart for Donald Trump's legal team to use big, I mean, and he's physically yeah. in, in, a, a big guy, Joe yeah. Tacopina, using a big male lawyer to cross-examine a woman when it comes to rape. Now, it wasn't like he was physically imposing upon her, but sure. he clearly was trying to poke holes in her credibility and her testimony. And, but yeah. it wasn't working. And the, the question of did, why didn't you scream just seems to me to, see, to be so uh, offensive and sort of difficult. Are you surprised that the prosecution, or that, I'm sorry, that Carol's lawyers didn't push harder to voir dire a jury that had more women on it? Because if there's six men, the presumption is that that's somewhat of an advantage for Trump. But I don't know that that necessarily is true. And that is such a great question. So when you're doing jury selection, and cases are won and lost, by the way, Absolutely. civil or criminal in jury selection. And, and listen, I'll say this to you, frankly, women can be more judgmental than men. Interesting. Women can judge women more harshly. Women can say, well, I wouldn't have dressed that lay or I wouldn't have gone into that room, that kind of thing. And so women sometimes can be more judgmental. But what I want to what I want to remind everybody who's tuning in E. Jean Carroll just had to withstand, and she continues to withstand cross-examination. It's going over till Monday. Tomorrow's a recess, yeah. by the way. It's going to Monday. You have a woman who's in her late 70s, yeah. right? She's had to basically take her entire life, and it's become a microcosm of scrutiny globally, nationally, uh, on audio and on video. And that's the other thing. We can't even actually see what's going on, right? Because right. you don't have a courtroom there. And she's had to almost defend the entirety of her life yeah. in just those few minutes in court. Yeah. And if you can withstand that, I invite anybody to have to go through that type of scrutiny. It is almost impossible to do. But she stood her ground mm -hmm. and she emphatically said... I was the victim of rape, and and I've said this before, there's no one-shoe-fits-all rape victim right. or response to rape. And so because she didn't scream, because she didn't call the police, because she didn't report it, because she didn't put it in a diary doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, having interviewed her myself, I can tell you this is one strong lady. Yeah. And if anyone can do this uh, horrible, horrible thing that, that I think needs to be done as part of the Me Too movement, accountability is important. So uh, Katie Fang, Adam Reese. The very best. Thank you both very much. Still ahead, Tucker Carlson speaks out for the first time since he was fired from Fox as we learn more about the vile, vulgar text that led him, led to him getting the boot. We'll be right back. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
been a rough week for Fox after the network let go of its star propagandist, Tucker Carlson. A big chunk of their audience was not too far behind. The eight o'clock show Tuckums used to host was has seen about a 47 percent drop in viewership. While in turn, the even more extreme conservative channel Newsmax has seen a boost. Their 8 p.m. hour has gone from just over 100,000 viewers to an audience of more than 500,000, which is just further proof that Tucker leaving Fox won't actually solve the larger issue at play here. Tucker was just one cog in this massive right-wing media machine that has spent decades spewing propaganda, stirring up outrage, and spreading conspiracies, using anger and fear to create a cult-like audience that at times seems like they live in an alternate universe. We saw it firsthand with the big lie that fomented a violent insurrection at the Capitol. With COVID, a large part of the country still firmly believes that the vaccines contain microchips or that the government created the pandemic in a lab, not to mention QAnon. Families have been torn apart because the right-wing echo chamber has sucked them deep into these dark conspiracies. And Fox is probably just the biggest culprit. But this isn't new. In fact, it started long before Tucker and long before Donald Trump. In 2015, Jen Senko released a documentary titled The Brainwashing of My Dad, in which she shows how Fox and the right-wing propaganda machine transformed her father from a Kennedy Democrat into an angry, paranoid, bigoted political extremist. And she quickly found out she was not alone. They just drummed into her what they wanted her to hear. She's a completely different person. My brother became very fat resistant. My reaction was, who are you and what have you done with my stepfather? Disjointed existence. And he was completely changed. He was, he was bitter and angry. At one point, he threatened to get a bus. He challenging. Obsessed. And she had never been like he that. He was carrying a small pistol. She was not hateful. Shot twice. It broke my heart to see my parents. Very loving. I feel I don't really know these people. I spoke with each one and found we all had one thing in common. Someone close to us became enraged and unreachable after excessively listening to or watching right-wing media. Joining me now is Jen Senko, documentary filmmaker who created The Brainwashing of My Dad, as well as the book by the same name. Jen, thank you for being here. Uh, Your documentary has been long recommended to me by friends who are saying you must watch this, must read this. It's so important to understand what Fox News is doing to people. What did watching Fox do to your dad? What was he like before? What was he like after becoming a regular viewer? My father was almost like a prototype hippie. He was so open-minded. He was so kind-hearted. He was goofy. He loved talking to strangers because he knew about seven different languages. So, um, you know, he would talk to anybody he heard with an accent. Um, and But what happened is one day they he moved. Um, well, they moved. My parents semi-retired. My father got a part-time job with a long commute. And... Uh, he found Bob Grant on the radio. Okay, so he was one of the first uh, right-wing radio guys. And then after he fully retired, he found Rush Limbaugh. And then he mm-hmm. fell in love, in man love, with Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> he would listen for three hours a day. And then he found Rush Limbaugh buddies, and one of his buddies introduced him to Fox. So it was like nonstop around the clock. And what happened is... 
he became a different person. It wasn't just his politics that changed. It was also his personality. He was miserable. He was angry all the time, enraged, and he became a zealot. He was like an evangelical, but for, he tried to convert us all to Republicans. And it really hurt the family relationships. And at one point, my mother wrote me an email and said, Jennifer, I might have to get an apartment. Wait, you know, like separate yeah. from my dad. They had they got separate bedrooms. Um, so it really hurt the relationship. Um, I don't know if you want to mention this, but he was eventually recovered. Oh, he did. Well, how we'll talk about that. What got him to stop watching? Okay, so I think that this is really an important point because it says something about the power of media, especially right-wing media. Um, So my parents moved again, and they moved to a senior community, and somehow in the move, the movers, like, broke his radio. So the radio ended up being in the garage. So when he would have lunch, he didn't have Rush Limbaugh. Immediately... Mm mellowed a little bit. He still had the emails. He still had Fox. So he was still kind of a jerk, if I may say, about my <laughs> loving father. <laughs> um, but um, what another thing that happened is my mom um, got a new TV in the kitchen because it was really old TV. Yeah. And she loved programming the remotes, right? So she had stickies all over the remote saying, press here, press there. And right. he didn't bother with it, so he just watched whatever she watched. And he just he detoxed. Started, he started mellowing out a little bit more. L- let me let yeah. me quickly play for you. Um, this is what from your documentary talking about the liberal media myth. Take a look. If you analyze news coverage as Fair has done, you find that the news tilts a little bit to the right. It's sort of center-right. Republicans usually outnumber Democrats. It's just pure math. And then people say, well, why do so many people believe the liberal media myth? If you keep handing opinion-shaping power to right-wingers who don't have evidence to yell about, oh, liberals, the liberals, the liberals, the liberals who dominate, well, it's going to have some traction. The liberal media. Liberal media. Liberal bias. Liberal media, folks. Liberal press. It is the liberal media. I want you to talk about that, but I also want you to listen to the grandson of Andrew Lester, who sounds to me like he, his dad or his grandfather was like your dad. Take a listen. I feel like a lot of people of that generation are caught up in this uh, 24-hour news cycle of fear and paranoia perpetuated by some other news stations. And he was fully into that, sit and watch uh, Fox News all day, every day, blaring in his living room. To bring those two things together, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, all media is like that. All media is biased and people are getting the same sort of rage from the quote unquote liberal media as they are from everyone else. But as you mentioned in your documentary, I don't know what this liberal media is. Um, But what do you make of that? The idea that there are other people who are still being brainwashed by it um, and this idea that people think that all the media is the same. Well, first of all, the media isn't liberal. I mean, we we all know that. If anything, it's it's corporate because it's run by corporations and you've got CEOs. 
But it really got ingrained in people. In fact, I was having lunch with a girlfriend the other day who's fairly liberal, and she called it the liberal media. I was like, no, it's not the liberal media. <laughs> but um, also, I mean, there was an intention behind creating right-wing media. The intention was to turn viewers, to turn the populace into Republicans that would vote for in the interest of billionaires and not in their own interests, not in their own economic interests. And that's why they invented culture wars. So, um, yeah. And I think it's worked. <laughs> I, I, I hate to say, I think yeah. it has worked on far too many people. Thank you for doing this documentary, Jen Senko. Uh, everyone should take a look at your documentary. Thank you very much. Coming up next, um, thank you. Coming up next, America's violent culture, from the not-so-serious violence showcased by the recently departed Jerry Springer to the deadly serious MAGA extremism of the Proud Boys. We're back in a sec. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Jerry Springer, the TV icon and one-time big city mayor, died today at the age of 79. Springer's TV show featured real Americans, albeit dysfunctional ones, who brawled before a raucous audience. We're talking screaming matches, even fist fights, as titles like I'm in love with my stepmom and Revenge Threesome became ratings gold. America just ate it up. Today on Springer. Hey, Matt, now look what you've done. It's the hottest show on daytime TV. Doubling its audience after introducing a new format and featuring the uncontrolled outburst. Why are you sleeping with the same guy? Jerry Springer has caught up to the longtime talk queen Oprah. Six and a half million viewers a day waiting for the next punch. You ain't no kind of woman if you mess with my man. Springer was the ringmaster of the chaos, but before his talk show, he actually had a career in politics. After law school at Northwestern, he worked as a young advisor on the Robert F. Kennedy presidential campaign before Kennedy's assassination. He later spearheaded the movement in Ohio to lower the voting age from 21 to 18, even testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. During his early political career, he was embroiled in a type of scandal that would have fit in perfectly on his show. He was found to have written a check for prostitution services at a massage parlor. He leaned into it, though, with a full admission and was reelected to the Cincinnati City Council and then later served as mayor. Put this all together. It starts to make sense why his show debuted in 1991 as a politically oriented interview program. That is, until Springer and his producers saw an opportunity, revamping the show's format to go tabloid, a move that helped him best Oprah herself in the ratings. 
Before the Jerry Springer show ended for good in 2018, Jerry joined me on occasion on my former show, AM Joy. Here he is in 2017 talking about Trump's tweets. That's show business. It doesn't belong in the White House. I don't think Trump has any feeling about the dignity and the sacredness of where he is. Springer also tweeted in 2016, Hillary Clinton belongs in the White House. Donald Trump belongs on my show. It is interesting commentary from someone who helped to normalize spectacle on a show that sometimes glorified violence. The rabid consumption of Springer TV exposed something profound about our culture. This is what America wanted in the decades since the Jerry Springer show debuted. It has become clear, including with the explosion of reality TV, that millions of Americans don't want nice. They want nasty. They want spectacle and even violence and importantly, an audience. It's no wonder the past decade saw a rise of gun culture, hateful political rhetoric, live streamed mass shootings and trigger happy political ads. And of course, the MAGA movement and all that's come with it. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. That's true. Like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Oh, get out of here. Get out of here. Look at these people. Get out of here. Get out. 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 One of the far right groups that has come to personify the vilest tendencies of Donald Trump's America is, of course, the Proud Boys, who crawled out of the woodwork the year that Trump ran for president. Founded by Gavin McInnes, the same guy who created Vice News, weirdly enough, but who also happens to be a hate monger with overtly racist and xenophobic views. Its most recent leader, Enrique Tarrio, who, yes, is actually a black Latino, counter-protested during a gathering to commemorate the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, meaning he's the guy for Derek Chauvin. What really put the Proud Boys on the map, though, was when Trump signaled to the group during one of the presidential debates, saying, stand back and stand by. It was widely interpreted as a call for the Proud Boys to be ready. It was an ominous prelude to the violence on January 6th. Nothing cements this country's modern embrace of anti-democratic bloodshed than the Capitol insurrection. And the Proud Boys played a central role. The trial against five members of the group, all charged with seditious conspiracy, is nearing an end. And it comes as American violence is at a fever pitch. A jury will decide what, if any, responsibility the Proud Boys had for what happened that day. But perhaps the larger questions are, why America is so ripe for this kind of violence? And will it ever end? History professor Kathleen Ballou joins me next to try to answer that question. The seditious conspiracy case against former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and four lieutenants has gone to the jury. The Justice Department said at closing arguments that the far-right members were thirsting for violence and organizing for action before the January 6th attack. Joining me now is Kathleen Ballou, associate professor of history at Northwestern University. Let's, let's talk first specifically, thank you for being here, Professor Ballou, um, about the, the kind of defense of it was all kind of just a game. This is what def, uh, Enrique Tarrio's defense was. It was Donald Trump's words. It was his motivation. It was his anger that caused a mob to attack Congress on January 6th, said Nayib Hassan, Tario's defense lawyer. Tario was, quote, an entertainer, a lover, and a razzle-dazzler, not a ringleader. I'm surprised anybody says the word razzle-dazzle in 2023. But the idea that uh, that kind of violence, and the Proud Board is just like a violent club, but that that is something they thought they could do. What does that say about our society? 
You know, the Proud Boys have mounted this kind of a line of defense for many acts of violence across the years, um, sort of saying it's performative or hazing or just kind of a rowdy fraternity. Um, That is not the movement that they are part of. Uh, We can recognize the Proud Boys as part of a long trajectory of militant right and white power style groups going all the way back to the 1980s. And these groups have a very clear mission of trying to interfere with or overthrow the United States government and attack its institutions and um, its people. So I, I think it is disingenuous to say the least. But this bigger question about why now, why are we ripe for this kind of violent subculture, um, and even for that subculture to burst into the mainstream, I think is exactly the right kind of question. And I think part of it does have to do with our media, the way our media has transformed our politics, um, and thinking about these through lines from Jerry Springer to Donald Trump into the mainstream is exactly the trajectory I would point to. The other one is the long aftermath of warfare. We know Mm -hmm. from the historical record that extremist groups like the Proud Boys um, gain ground in the aftermath of warfare. And we are now in the aftermath of this incredibly long, protracted global war on terror. We don't yet know how this aftermath period is going to shape up, but we know that it will impact violence on the home front. Yeah, and just to give you a heads up, this well, this wasn't a club, right? It was they were texting. If Biden steals the election, we won't go quietly. No Trump, no peace. They orchestrated a plan to turn up in record numbers on January sixth. They had a document with detailed plans to surveil and storm government buildings. They took credit for the insurrection uh, after it was folding, saying we did this. Is it strange to you that the leader of a white nationalist style group is black? Because Enrique Tarrio is. He's a Black Latino. Is that odd to you? So first of all, I think yes and no. The claims on whiteness are historically constructed and very contingent, and there's all kinds of reasons why different people are welcome in these groups at different times. Most of them are opportunistic reasons. So these groups, and by that I mean white power groups, are interested in using whatever kind of memberships and opportunities are available to them in order to do what they would like to do, which is usually to establish a white ethno state. We should be thinking about the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, um, and other public-facing manifestations of this movement as connected with each other and as part of a big, broad groundswell. The story we tell about the Proud Boys should be in the same breath as talking about Airman uh, Jack Teixeira, who seems to have been involved in this ideology before sharing um, military intelligence with others and possibly plotting violence um, as of the charging documents that came out this week. It should be in the same breath as thinking about underground activity like that of Adam Waffen and the base um, and other groups that are interested in, in promoting violence in those ways. And we should also be thinking about how this interfaces with our political mainstream. Um, so for a- activists in this kind of a movement, Um, You know, President Trump's decision to have a campaign rally in Waco, Texas, that's Mm -hmm. about more Mm -hmm. than sort of the meaning of Waco in terms of being vaguely anti-government or vaguely anti-federal government. To these activists, that connects directly to a violent history that includes the Oklahoma City bombing. This is all part of a cohesive ideology and a socially networked movement that goes back 
decades, if not generations. And we and, and now we have a situation where domestic terrorism increased by 357 percent between 2013 and 2021. And multiple countries have warned their citizens about traveling to the United States because of gun violence. Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, Uruguay, Venezuela. Is the U.S. for some, based on our history, based on the violence of our founding, are we uniquely susceptible to this kind of violence? these kinds of violent movements? I think not uniquely susceptible, but these kinds of violent movements have been much more successful in the United States in getting weapons and material that was designed for warfare um, into civilian spaces. It's the guns. As usual, it's the access. There is no country where civilians have 400 plus million firearms at home stashed wherever and the kind of lethal um, capabilities that our civilians have. And they're hopped up on this kind of rage. It is kind of frightening. It is more than kind of frightening. Kathleen Blue, always appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. That is tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.